So this morning we're going to be talking about calling. A lot of the, this whole service has kind of surrounded that idea. We had the ordination, we had a lot that's talked about during music. We're talking about calling. Am I coming through? Okay. And as I was preparing for this, I just dug up more and dug up more, and I just, this has been such a blessing to me to study into this topic. And what I very quickly realized was this is a series, not a sermon. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to narrow down the idea of calling to a very broad aspect. There is so much more to this idea. There's very specific callings. There's all these other things. So if, if at the end of the, the sermon you're like, wait, but there's this and there's this and there's this, that you're absolutely right. Well done catching that. Uh, we're not going to catch it. We're not going to cover it all, though. Uh, and that, that's okay because we all want to eat lunch at some point. Let's, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for the many people that are involved this morning, the very various people that have been on the stage, the people in the background, the people that are here just wanting to worship, wanting to praise God. Maybe take a second and just clear out all the nonsense from our lives that's getting in the way of hearing your voice this morning and turn our eyes to you. So that we can receive your blessing. God, may the words that I speak this morning not be my own, but be yours. May the message that we hear this morning be what you want us to hear individually. Shape those words. Shape that message. May we, this morning, lift your name on high and hear your voice. Amen. So I'm told that this story is true. I don't know, but it's told first person from an ambulance driver. He was driving down the road on his way to a call, lights and sirens, the whole bit. And he's going up and he comes up to this vehicle that's driving roughly 10 miles an hour under the speed limit. You know that kind of person, probably a Subaru. And I like Subarus, but you know. Uh, driving along and they're just like honking. Nothing's happening. This person would not pull over. And so they eventually get on their loudspeaker and says, please, please pull over to the side of the road. And immediately this car pulls over. Wonderful. So as the story goes, they get to their destination. They do what they need to do. Turns out that they're able to sort everything out in some way or another. They didn't have to take the patient home. So they turn around and they're going back to their home base there. And as they're driving back, they see said Subaru on the side of the road, still parked where it was at. And, and so the driver goes, what's this? And he says, well, maybe there's a problem. Let's, pu let's pull over. So they go over and pull over, and they get out of the car, and there's this lady that's sitting in the driver's seat. And he says, ma'am, what are you doing still here? And she says, well, I was told to pull over. And they said, ma'am, uh, you, you can go now. She says, no, no, God told me to pull over. And I will not get back on that road until he specifically says he can. All right, all right. So they go back to the car, the, the ambulance. They sit down, and, and the one in the passenger seat says, well, what do we do? This poor lady is going to be sitting there forever. And the other one gets out his horn and says, please pull back. Please pull back onto the road. And immediately she pulls back on there. And off she goes. 
Listening to God's voice is a tricky thing. It's easy to be so desperate to hear God's voice in our calling that we look for anything that could be construed as God's voice. And so any little thing is like, there's that, there's that, there's that, where is it? And so often we feel like there's this, there's this one thing that God wants from us. And if you could just like send us an email, right? I, I, I'm, I've definitely been there. Like, God, can you please just send me an email? And it never happens. I get this a lot with the high school seniors that I'm working with. They feel like there's this, there's this decision. What do I do? There's this turning point. And there's this feeling that any decision that I make will be a hinge point for the rest of my life. And there's a sense that, that if I pick the wrong thing, then I will be outside of God's will and the rest of my life will be in shambles. And if I pick the right thing, then I'll be in my sweet spot. That is a lot of pressure. No wonder it's so stressful. Maybe for you it's a job, a move, who you'll marry. Our lives are full of these massive decisions, and we look for God's leading in it, and it's a difficult, difficult thing. And I hope more than anything else that when you're looking at those decisions, what those decisions are is they're surrounded by your sense of calling. Where does, what does God want out of my life? Not so much how much money am I going to make, or where I'm going to, even, even where I'm going to be happiest is where am I going to be most effective for God. Well, this morning I hope that we can alleviate some of those stresses and talking about God's call. We're going to start broad, the concepts that apply to everybody, and we're going to narrow them down just a little bit and go really quickly as we get to the kind of some of those narrow things as I talked about earlier. But I want to start with a base perception how many people think, because I think that this adds more stress to our lives than needs to be. I think a lot of people, when they're looking at their lives, see themselves like this gear. Is that not the weirdest gear you've ever seen? It's weird. Like, where does that even fit? And they're going, I don't, I don't see myself fitting anywhere. And if I do fit somewhere, it's something that is very, clearly very specifically designed just for me. I, I, there has to be one job. And if you don't find that one thing, you'll clearly be miserable for your whole life. I hear all these stories about being discovered, and suddenly the world makes sense. Once we find that one matching gear, that one piece in the machine where we fit, then our lives will be right. And that is a stressful place to be, because what it does is every single time you find yourself unhappy with your life, insecure, just not, things aren't working well, you feel like this gear that's mismatched, and you haven't found your one spot, and clearly you're wasting your life because you're called to greatness, and yet your greatness hasn't been discovered. And so we look for this moment when we finally find that matching gear. Isn't that cool? And so we think about life like this, and it's so hard. And I don't think God is concerned about more. He's concerned about whether you are doing what you are asked. I, see, I hear so often people downplay, the usefulness, downplay their usefulness to the church, especially because they don't like to be up front. 
You'll talk to somebody and I'll say, hey, will you do children's story for me? Oh, I don't do up front. I'm really just a behind-the-scenes person. And it breaks my heart every time I hear that because, honestly, this is important. Like, what happens up here is not the most important thing, in my opinion, that happens in the church. Just imagine a church. Imagine a church with me for a second where you walk in, great preacher, amazing preacher, so good. You walk in, and suddenly, like, the, the people there are nasty and they're mean. The church is run down. Like, clearly, the bathrooms haven't been cleaned in six months or so. You get in. You sit down in the pew. The little, you know, spring is poking you in the butt. <laughs> You're like, ugh. And it's uncomfortable. And, and, and the person that's standing up here that's leading song service, they're clearly not into it. They're just trying to get through it. They're unhappy. Nothing's going well. It's, oh, man, on and on and on. All these things are going wrong. And the preacher gets up. Oh, he's so good. He's so good. But and nobody invites you to lunch. Nothing happens. Like, it just, that does not sound like a good place for me to be. I don't care how good the preacher is. If the people aren't good. Now, let's switch this around a little bit. Let's imagine walking into a church. Clearly, they take good care of it. They take pride in what's happening there. You walk in. People are friendly. All the conversations that you hear going on around you are people talking about the amazing things that God has done in their lives. They're talking about faith. They're talking about giving their problems to God. They're supporting each other in amazing ways. You're invited to lunch. You end up going to potluck. Such good food, right? And you go in, and the, the song service just moves your heart so good. The preacher gets up there, meh, he gets through it. He says, um, a few too many times. But he gets through it, and whatever, that wasn't too great. Which church would you rather go to? I bet that you would rather go to the second church. And I would too, although I'd prefer not to be the second preacher. I would prefer that too. And what I'm trying to get at is what happens up this morning. Don't downplay your gifts. Don't downplay your role. Man, if you are, like, if you love being back there, getting the food ready to go, cleaning, like, you've got my vote. That's awesome. If, you, if you're not an upfront person, that's okay. Your role is important. And there's a few big problematic assumptions that I want to address. The first one being that greatness comes from being the best. When we talk about all these things, like what if Stephen Hawking never got a good uh, education? What if Michael Phelps never learned how to swim? What a wasted opportunity, right? But the wrong thing about that is that greatness comes from being the best. And that is not a Christian concept. Greatness comes from beating out everybody else. Greatness comes from having the best outcomes. Greatness comes from having fame. And that's not how God sees it. Second problem with this, it completely leaves out the idea of God's leading. When we look at this idea of there's this one place where we fit, and we're going to miss that, then we're leaving out this idea that God moves, God's lead. And you know what? Maybe if I'm not 
feeling like it's my perfect fit, but I'm listening to the voice of God in my life, then I'm in the right place. That's the beauty of faith, is that we don't have to feel like we're gambling with our lives. Okay. So I want to jump in real quick to the parable of the talents. How does God see God's how does God see greatness? This is in Matthew 25, 14 through 23, if you'd like to turn there, or you could follow along. I'm just gonna go ahead and read it for you. Here we go. Matthew 25, 14. And we're not gonna read the whole thing because there's a lot to unpack here. There's one thing in specific that I want us to look at. Matthew 25, 14, one more time. For the kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus speaking in a parable, is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And so this, there's this, this there's master, and he's giving his servants. And to one servant, he gave five talents. This is a unit of money. So for one, but it's convenient that it's talents, right? Because that's kind of what we're talking about. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and another he gave one, and to each according to his ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received five talents went and traded with them and made five talents. He doubled his money. And likewise, he had received two, gained two more. But he who had received one went and dug it into the ground. He hid the Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five talents here, saying, Lord, you delivered me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. And the Lord said, and this is what I want you to hear very specifically, well done, good and faithful servant, for you will f- were faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler of many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Wow, what a cool statement. And he who had also received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, well, you didn't make as much as the last guy. No, that's not what he said, is it? Oh, well, it's okay. You only made me two. No, no, no. This is what he says. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, I know this is a little quiche, but let's just do this together because I, I, I'm feeling it, right? I want us all to repeat, well done, good and faithful servant. Just like, say it with me. Well done, good and faithful servant. What beautiful Words. When I think about going into heaven, I think about looking into Jesus' eyes and hearing him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. There is no more beautiful thing than that. Wow. But I want you to see is that the exact same thing was said to those, the one who made a little bit of money and the one who made more money. To God, product, the amount of product that you produce does not matter. What matters is that you handle the gifts that he has given you in the way he asked you to. 
That's it. And it's easy to feel like, man, I'm not calling people like in the billions to God, right? Like I'm not doing this. All I'm doing is, is cleaning the church toilets. How is that helping anything? If God called you to clean the church toilets, he is going to give you the same well done as he is Billy Graham. Amazing, isn't it? Do what you were called to do. That's all. You don't need to worry about product. All you need to do is worry about handling your call and listening to God's voice. If that doesn't take a lot of stress off, I don't know what does. Handle your call. God isn't concerned about more. He's concerned about whether you are doing what is asked. One time in undergrad, I heard pastoral ministry. They say, if you're thinking about becoming a pastor, do everything you possibly can to not first. And if God grabs you by the ankle and pulls you in, then that's when you know you're supposed to pee. And it was kind of offensive to me the first time I heard it. I was like, well, that's a horrible way of treating such a high calling. And the more I see and the more I look around, the more I can understand why that was said. Is because what I've seen is that people that are passionate about God within the workplace have far more influence than anybody else. Your mission, like you're in the mission field. It's amazing. And so you may feel like, oh, well, and I, I, I don't say this to, to up myself or anything, but I've heard people say this, well, you know, I thought I was called to be a pastor, but instead I'm just, I'm, I, I'm just being, a, I'm just a plumber. Are you, are you a plumber that loves Jesus? Are you telling people about Jesus where you're at? You are in the mission field. Uh, more than I can say, you interact with more people that need Jesus than I do. If that's what your job is, if that's what God has called you to do, then that is a high, high calling. Wonderful. Do what you're asked to do while you're doing it, where you're at. I jumped ahead. A sermon preached with your life and attitude will always, always be more effective than the one you preach with your words. A sermon preached with your life and attitude will always be more effective than one preached with your words. I invite you to go out into your world, whatever it may be. It may be your workplace or your mom's groups or your motorcycle club or whatever it may be and preach the sermon of grace with your life. Show people what peace looks like. Show people what grace looks like. Show people what joy looks like. Show people the character of God through your actions. Be radical with this. And so when we talk about calling, I want to start with this. Don't get hung up on what am I called to do? What am I called to do? What's that one thing? I want to say this. All are called to these three things. There is no such thing as somebody who follows Christ from their armchair only. All are called to these three things. Desire and pursuit of holiness in your life. 
desire and pursuit, and I put desire in there for a very specific reason. We can pursue holiness on our own, and that does not make us holy. It makes us really mean, awful people. We can pursue holiness on our own, and it makes us mean and awful people because we think that it saves us. But we desire holiness, not for the sake of our, of our own uh, leading or whatever. We desire holiness for the sake of being closer to God. We are all called to that. Everyone, every living person on the face of the planet. We are all called to serve and love others. We are all called to that. And we are all called to love and pursue God with our whole hearts. If you are doing and actively doing all three of these things, then you are following your call. And if God, if you're doing all these things and actively pursuing all these things, God will put things in front of you and he will lead you, he will guide you. So stop worrying about finding that crazy missing gear and just look at these three things. Desire and pursue holiness, serve and love others, and most importantly, love and pursue God. Jesus called the disciples. When he called them, he said, follow me. It's not, he didn't just call from the shore, hey, hey you, do you believe who I am? And they say, yeah. He's like, cool, and walks away. No, he said, follow me, dedicate your lives, drop what you're doing, and follow. He didn't sit down with them and say, okay, well, let's make sure that you're, you're a right fit for any of this. Follow. That's all we need to do. Follow, follow, follow. If you struggle with what's your call, this is it. The next thing I want to talk about is using your giftedness. This is a term, fight in your armor, that's used a lot in ministry, and I think it's a beautiful one, and I love it. And it's talking about David. The story of David, he was a shepherd boy. Many of you know this story, but I'm going to go ahead and say it just real quickly. David was a shepherd boy. He was out there. He was defending his sheep. And one day, the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, dug, dug down and, and created their battle lines. And the Israelites dug down, created their battle lines, and they were in a standoff. And rather than waste everybody's blood, the Philistines chose their champion, a giant, literal giant, whose dimensions are in the Bible. Check it out. Named Goliath. And he comes out every day and he says, Go ahead and choose your champion. And whoever wins, wins. And David one day brings food to his brothers who are in the army. And he sees what's going on here. And he's like, You can't let this happen. We serve a big God. You cannot cower in front of this man who's saying this. You can't do that. And they're like, well, you want to do something about it? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to do something about this. Bring it. Now, this is the part that blows my mind about this story. If that ever happened in any sphere that I've been part of, we'd all just be like, sit down, David. <laughs> Go away. We're not going to hang our future on your puny little head. Go take care of your sheep. But they didn't do that, and I'm, my mind is like, every time I talk about the story, like I just, my mind's constantly turning into gears going, what were they thinking? Why did they allow this to happen? But they did, nonetheless. So he went, goes in to see the king, and the king's just like, 
yeah, kids, sure, go ahead and fight. We're going to lose anyways. I mean, that's not what he says, but this is what I put onto the story in my mind. Like, sure. And, and he puts on his armor, and he can't move in his armor. And David literally says, like, what, what the Bible says is he says, I've never worn armor. I can't fight in this. This is not comfortable for me. What I'm comfortable with is my sling. And I'm going to go out there and fight him. Now, uh, I'm going to go ahead and transition just a little bit because there's a really uh, cool talk by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. If you've ever read any of his books, I'm a big fan of his. And Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called David and Goliath. He is not a Christian, was not a Christian, I should say. And he wrote this book about underdogs. And so in the process, like, he says, who's the quintessential underdog? Well, David, David, David and Goliath. So he goes and he writes this book, and in the process of writing his book, he found Jesus, and he became a Christian. And so we've got this book called David and Goliath, and he does a TED Talk about what he found within the story of David and Goliath that he found so compelling. I'm going to start adding a little bit of this in. So what he says is he says, we think of a slingshot like a, like a little, you know, a, with surgical tubing, right? And a marble. And he says, no, 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 this isn't what, this, the sling was actually a very well-established um, weapon of war. And there are stories over and over, he says, they, it, it hit typically with the force of a 45 caliber handgun bullet. So this is a serious weapon. And, and the armies at the time would have whole units of slingers that would go and they would use this. And there's many, many stories throughout history outside of the Bible where they talk about slingers being the decisive point in the battles. And there's even medieval tapestries where they show, and they, maybe this is bragging, but we'll go with it for now. They show slingers hitting birds out of the air. So this is a serious weapon. So it's not like he's just like, meh, 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 you know, I'm, I'm going to go shoot him with my little thing. And so he goes out there, and he says, I'm just going to go, and I'm going to get him with this sling. And Goliath, he's insulted. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And so Malcolm Gladwell theorizes this about Goliath. He's not the originator of this, but I think that he puts it in a very interesting way. He says, there are certain things within the Bible that you can see give little hints about what may be going on with Goliath. He says, if we look at Goliath in our modern day uh, way of thinking, if there's somebody with a huge amount of height difference, then there's usually something medically wrong with that person. And I'm not, yeah, I mean, seriously, and it's called, ac I'm, I'm going to say this wrong, acromegaly. What is it? Acro I said it right? Thank you. Called acromegaly. Okay. Good to have you in the audience. Thank you. And it's caused by a tumor on the pituitary gland that causes overproduction of human growth. There are many examples of this in modern day. Andre the Giant was one of them. And people with condi this condition always develop sight problems. And what Malcolm Gladwell says is if we look at this story, we can see little things like the fact that Goliath was led down by an attendant. When he comes down, Goliath pulls up his visor because he couldn't see David. And he says, come here. Why come here? 
Well, because he couldn't see him. And so there's all these examples of this. And he says, anybody that was within striking distance of Goliath would have easily been defeated by Goliath. The only thing that could have defeated Goliath was a ranged weapon, like a sling. But nobody else knew this. Nobody else knew this. And the first time I heard the story, honestly, I was a little bit offended because I was like, it, it feels a little bit, and maybe you're with me on this, it feels a little bit like he's taking away the miracle of the story. I don't know if you're feeling like this for me. Like, I was just like, oh, he's just trying to explain away the story. But the more I think about it, the more I realize how amazing it is that God, God's calling in this story because God knew that the only person that could kill Goliath, the only weapon that could kill Goliath was a ranged weapon. Nobody in the army was thinking like that. Nobody was. And the only person that was skilled at ranged weaponry was taking care of the sheep. And God brought him out, put him right there, and even the army sat him down and says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take this giant suit of armor, you're going to use your sword, and you're going to go get killed. Good luck, kid. And David's like, no, I'm going to use what I'm comfortable with. And God put the one person, and he gave him, he gave him the wherewithal to say, no, I will fight in the armor that I've been given, with the skills that I've been given. This is who God made me. God made me a slinger, not a swordsman. And I will fight this man with my sling, even if it means that I'm going to lose. Even though he did not know that that's the only thing that could have defeated Goliath and saved God's people. You may find that you are in a situation that you are completely unsuited for. Or that it feels like you're unsuited for. Like your gears just don't match up where you're supposed to be. But maybe, just maybe, God puts you in that position because of the specific skills that he gave you and a different way of thinking about the situation that you're at. Stop trying to put on the armor that everybody else is telling you you have to fight in. It's not going to work. Put on the armor that God has given you. Look at who you are. Look at your experiences. Look at who God's calling you to be and fight in that armor. Before we leave David, it could be wrongly taken that David was a bit arrogant. He shows up and says, I'm just going to fight this guy and it'll all be good. And as you read about David's story, I really suggest that you do. First and second Samuel, awesome. I love the story of David. It is characterized by him constantly asking for God's direction. There's one story that really hit me this week as I was reading the story and preparing for the sermon. And the story at this time, David was living as, with a small army as outlaws at the time. And they went out um, on a mission and they came back. And when they came back, they found that the town where all their wives and children were hiding was burned to the ground and destroyed. And all their wives and children were taken away as hostages. And the story says they wept until they had no more strength left. Of course they would. What a horrible, horrible situation to find yourself in. Now at this point, 
I want you to understand David is a highly successful warrior and leader. And I think that just about anybody in this room, myself included, would be like, I am going to find you, and I will kill you. You took my family, you will die. Because that's what he had. He could. He could go after whatever army took him and destroy them. But that's not what he did. This blows my mind. He asked God if he should go and rescue them. Who does that? God, would you like me to rescue my family or just leave them up to the enemies? He asked them. I believe this shows an incredible amount of character on God's part that he was constantly going back, looking for God's will, even in the situations that looked so incredibly obvious. And I just want to read this psalm real quick. This is written by David. And I want you to just look for that seeking of God. Is this a boy that's arrogant? Is this a man that's arrogant of his abilities? Or is this, or is this a man that's something else? Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for, I, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. This verse is just so full of humility, so full of focus on God. There is no arrogance in this. And in your steadfast love, I will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. I know this is hard to believe, but as a child, I was very small. I was always the smallest and the oldest kid in my class. And that suited me just fine. I was never the fastest. I was never the greatest at keep away basketball, running, whatever. But I was nimble. And you pair that with a love and a complete lack of fear for heights. And I climbed everything. It was fantastic. I could climb up trees. I, could, I would climb up everything. It's kind of amazing to me that my parents allowed me to do what I did. Um, I think they probably just discovered at some point that they couldn't stop me. And so there I went. And then one day, when I was in elementary school, I discovered gymnastics. And I was the perfect flyer, and I loved it. They would grab a hold of me and just throw me across the gym, and I'd be like, woo, enjoying every second of it. It was so much fun. I was small. I had complete trust and confidence, no fear of heights. I loved it. There were even a few routines in gymnastics where some of my own classmates were my bases. And if that gives you any idea of how small I was. And there was even one where my sister had to base me, which meant, like, I climbed on her shoulders. She wasn't happy about that. She was the one person I did not trust. <laughs> I had my perfect combo. I had exactly what I loved doing. I loved being in the air. I loved being thrown around. I loved all this stuff. And then the most horrible thing happened to me. Puberty. And suddenly I started beginning to grow. And I started becoming normal size. And suddenly they started asking me to <gasps> be a base. No. And that was the day I quit gymnastics. 
I hated it. Why should I go and watch everybody else have fun? And for the longest time, I was bitter and I was angry because I felt like suddenly I was in a body that I shouldn't have been in. Suddenly, I felt like my calling, what I was good at, had been taken away. And I was bitter and I was angry. Why would you do this to me, God? What I love most has been taken away from me. And I went to Southern for college, and they have the best gymnastics team ever. They would go out, and they'd do some off, awesome things. And, and I, I couldn't bear to go to any of their shows because I was like, why should I watch everybody else have fun doing the things I'd prefer to be doing? And as I, I grew and, and, and began to observe life, I began to see that many, many people live their entire lives with that bitterness and that feeling inside of them that somebody else is doing what they should be doing. You listen to people, and they talk about, like, well, I would be successful if I was smarter, if I had grown up with more money, if I was more beautiful, if I was more charismatic, if I was more studious, all these things. If I was just, and we all have those lists, don't we? If I was just fill in the blank here, then I would be successful. What if, what if God made you exactly who you need to be? What if? And what if we spent, stopped spending all of our time trying to fix what's wrong with us and instead look at what we're gifted at? There was a, I mean, go through this real quick. There was a speed reading study in 1950s by Gallup, and there was two groups, and I love this study. There was a gifted group, and they were remarkably fast at reading. They read 350 words per minute, which is good. And then there was a normal reading group, and they read at 90 words per minute. And they both put them together, and they put them through the exact same speed reading course. The normal people went up 66% which is good, in, um, good growth, 66%, from 90 to 150 words per minute. Good improvement, but still under half of what the gifted people st started at. The gifted people, are you ready for this? This is amazing. They went up eight, from, from an already high reading level. They went up 828%. 828%. They went from 350 words per minute, get this, to 2,900 words per minute. So let me ask you, are your energies best served trying to make up what you feel is wrong with you, or are your energies best at making what already, you're already good at better? Think about that for a second. You could be spending all of your energy trying to fix what's wrong with you for 66% growth, or you could be spending your energy looking at 828% growth by looking at what God made you to be. I wonder how many of us use our strengths as faults. This is um, Paul. And I just think about the story of Paul, and I think about his passion and drive and, unwa and unwavering belief as Saul, pre-conversion, what made him so good at being evil is what made him so good at growing the church to where we need to be. 
our strengths not paired to the leading of the Holy Spirit creates incredible evil. Our strength not paired with the leading of the Holy Spirit is an incredibly bad thing. And I, I wonder sometime, it must be incredible, incredibly difficult for God to look down on us and look at how he's made us exactly in a certain way. And here we are spending our time either wishing that we were somebody else or, or using our gifts, discrediting our gifts, discarding our gifts, using them for selfish purposes. I know that we talk a lot about, like, how do we help people in need? How do we help the homeless people? How do we help this group? And I've heard a lot talking about being smart with that, right? And I think that sometimes it must feel like God. You know what? If any of you are brave enough to do this, let me know. Because I want to hear, like, what your visceral reaction to this is. I think it must be a little bit like walking up to somebody on the street that you absolutely know is going to use your money to buy drugs or alcohol, going up to them, pulling out a 20 from your wallet, giving it to them, and say, buy some food, knowing that they won't. Knowing that they won't. And I feel like sometimes that must be how God feels when we spend our time throwing away the gifts that he used for us, that he gave to us for selfish and evil purposes. biggest reveal for me on the topic is that calling, no matter what it is, extravagant or subtle, is less about what we do and more about a shift in perspective that motivates us. Being called means coming to see what we see service as, as an incredible honor, because in it we are invited for a very short period of time, our lives are short, to be a participate in the great battle between good and evil. Coming to see the world in light that we are players on a cosmic arena. Witnessed by all angels and all demons. Every person that we come in contact with is a soul that heaven and hell battle for. And we are God's chosen agents for that moment. God has given you exactly what you need to make a difference in the world. Maybe you are one of the lucky ones who's called beyond your capabilities. Guess what? If God's asking you to do something that you don't feel prepared for, hold on, because you're about ready to experience some change if you pick that up. That'd be my next sermon if I was going to preach. I've talked to so many people. People, my favorite preacher in Adventism, I learned fairly recently, this, this man's amazing, I love him. I learned recently that he is terrified of preaching. How could it be? How could it be that this man is called to preach? He's been preaching for probably about as long as I've been alive, and he's terrified it, of it. He says even when he stands up front today, he shakes, and he relies on God. And that's why he's so good at preaching. Not because he's naturally gifted at it, but God's called him to do that. And I find more and more and more that the more I talk to people, the more I find that the good things that they are giving to the world. They're giving not because they feel like they're good at it, but because they feel called to it and they know that God will equip them for it. I talked to my grandma this week. She's on hospice. She was given a few weeks to live. And I, I talked to her a little bit about planning her own funeral. And I've done that before 
just with my job, that's, you know, part of our job, what we do. But it lands a little bit differently when it's family. And the reason I bring it up, because it's a poignant reminder that we have very limited amount of time here on earth. Who knows? Maybe something will happen to me on the way home, and she outlives me. I don't know. And if that happens, if that happens, for any one of us, I hope that I and you have done everything we can to make a difference for the kingdom of God with what little breath that we have. I want you to imagine Jesus putting his arm around you when you get to heaven and pointing out people one by one. Hey, you may not know it, but that guy is here because you were nice to him, because you were friendly to him, because you showed him my character. Oh, see her over there? She was having a really bad day that time that you said a nice word to her. Hey, see that person over there? You gave them Bible studies. You didn't think that they were listening, but they were. And they're here because of you. Imagine, imagine. Wow, what a wonderful thing that would be. I invite you to answer the call, to hear God's voice, and to make the most of the breath that you have. Amen.